there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another Espresso Shots episode of T4C. I am so excited that you're along for the ride. And you will be too when I introduce you to today's guest because If you're interested in making a really good salary as a freelancer, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is earning eight figures a year as a freelancer and an entrepreneur, and he teaches thousands of people how to do it too. In fact, it's part of a global mission he has to impact a billion people in the next 10 years. But before I introduce you to Stefan Georgi, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for coffee's newsletter that is packed with career advice, insights, and inspiration gleaned from hundreds of interviews I've done with amazing professionals in dozens of different industries. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org to sign up. Now, my cafe au lait loving aspiring copywriters, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is master copywriter Stefan Georgi, who is considered by many to be the number one copywriter in the world. Stefan has helped his clients earn a whopping $700 million in sales ever since he broke into this field in 2012. And he's developed basically a paint-by-numbers methodology to help you level up your copywriting called the RMBC method. So stay tuned if you want to learn how Stefan went from getting $149 for his very first letter to an astonishing $50,000 a letter today. Stefan is also the host of a terrific podcast called The Road to a Billion. Now, you know why it's called The Road to a Billion, which is a call-in radio show style podcast where Stefan answers your questions on mindset, business ownership, scaling funnels, freelancing, and of course, copywriting. By the way, one of the best parts about copywriting is that it is a freelancer's dream. It's a field that is growing despite the coronavirus, and it's something you can also learn to do from the comfort of your home, your apartment, whatever, online. We're going to be digging into what a copywriter does and how to find those jobs in just a few minutes. But first, Stefan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I am. I I just finished my coffee a few minutes ago. It's kicking in. I feel great and I am ready to rock. Awesome. Awesome. And you were actually telling me that you are a super early riser. It is now about 7.30 in the morning in Vegas where you live with your families. I'm on the East Coast where it's 10.30. But you get up at like 4.30? Yeah, I do. I mean, not every day. I, I don't set an alarm, which is one of the great things about being a freelancer and, and your own boss. But 
between about 4.30 and, and 6 o'clock on the kind of late end. And the story behind that is a few a year and a half, two years ago, I went to a sort of exclusive marketing event, like a mastermind is what it's called, with about 100 other entrepreneurs. And we had a bunch of really kind of famous, successful people there talking to us. And so one commonality I noticed from them, and this was like Magic Johnson, Chris Jenner, Mark Wahlberg, Marcus Lino, the guy from The Prophet, Marcus Lemotis, whatever his name is. But like... All of them talked about how they woke up really early, like 4 o'clock, 4.30, whatever it is. And I just already was a kind of a morning person. I already kind of wanted to do that. But it it sort of gave me the push that I I needed. And I decided to try it out and just experiment and see. And I just found that it was really helpful. I got a lot more done. I felt really good. By the time 8 o'clock in the morning rolls around, it's like I've already accomplished all this stuff and, and knocked out a bunch of my big things for the day. So my anxiety levels are way lower. And then I have like a three-year-old daughter. And so being able to get all that done before my daughter wakes up then gives me way more time to be a parent and a dad. So for me, it's just been a total game changer. And I love it. So how early do you go to bed? Uh, this is a great question. People ask that a lot. And that's a great question. It depends. I mean, like 930 uh, at the late end, 1030. Sometimes in the dead of winter, I was going to bed like 845 or 9 because it gets dark so early. Like, you know, so... One cool thing too, actually, though, is that historically, I have a little bit of like seasonal affective disorder, or whatever, like, you know, I, I get kind of bummed out during the winter, because the days are short. And I, I love sunshine and warm weather. Me too. Uh, what I realized waking up super early, that I'm really maximizing every minute of daylight, you know, because I'm up before the sun comes up. And then going to bed, even though I was going to bed like in the middle of December and, and even late November at like 8.45 or 9, I just felt like my, my mood was actually way better too because I actually was able to be, you know, get all of that, that sunlight that I probably needed. During the winter, I, mean, I go to bed even earlier. During the summer, maybe like 10, 10, 15, 10.30. Oh, man. I, see, I need like eight hours minimum to really be firing on all pistons. So I would have to go to bed probably at like 8.30. To do that, but I do get up. I get up relatively early. So before we dive into our 10 espresso shots, Stefan, to help our young listeners learn how they can break into copywriting, I thought it would be a good idea to give them a quick overview of what copywriting as you define it actually looks like because I have a confession to make before preparing for our interview. I didn't realize that you could make a shitload of money as a copywriter. I did not realize what a lucrative field it is. Yeah, it it can be a really lucrative field. So the general, really broad kind of way I would define copywriting is that you're just writing advertisements. And and that's been going on for forever. If you if the show Mad Men, right, like people on Madison Avenue, you know, they they were writing ads and commercials. Those are creatives and, and copywriters. The kind of copywriting that that I do and that I think most people will be interested in who listen to this is direct response copywriting. And with direct response copywriting, the big goal is that with whatever ads you're writing, when a prospect or prospective customer hears that ad, watches it, reads it, whatever, that they take a direct, they directly respond to it. They take an action. So whereas a TV commercial might, you know, hope that people will go buy a new Hyundai in a couple months from now, or it may be like hopefully someone will switch from AT and T to Verizon or whatever. It's sort of like you know they can measure it, but it's more of like a long tail impact versus direct response copywriting is where you're like click the button and buy now, pick up the phone and call, send write a check and send it in, you know, to donate to a nonprofit, sign up for our email list, whatever it is. You're, you're basically telling explicitly telling 
your prospective customer to take action and you're, you're being very clear about that. And that, that's sort of uh, direct response copywriting, which is the type I do. And frankly, the type I enjoy more because it's, it's more measurable. You can really see pretty quickly, did, did they respond or not? If they responded, then what you created was successful. If they don't respond to it, then it's not. And then you can tweak and do iterations and things of that nature and, and make it successful. I know, obviously, you have been super successful for your clients in addition to for yourself. But Could you give us an idea on average, what percentage of those who open the click rate actually buy? It definitely depends on the price point, of course, right? Because if something's a, a, a lower price point, then generally more people will buy. If it's a higher price point, then fewer people will buy. You know, let's say that the average order value, which means that when someone goes to your store and they buy a couple different things, maybe they, you know, and, and then the total of what they spent for something where that average order value is maybe hundred to two hundred dollars. Honestly, if three percent of people were to buy, that would be considered very good. You know, four percent would be like a home run. But then there's other things out there where maybe you're selling a high ticket coaching program, and for that, you know, you're charging ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars. And at that point, you know, if like a half a percentage of people buy, then you're thrilled. Right. So it depends a little bit, but it's really proportional to the price. But it does, it does blow my mind when I first got into this whole world because essentially a lot of what I do, I do a lot, but like one of the things is, is writing essentially infomercials. So just online infomercials, right? So you go to, um, if you're on like weather.com or Forbes.com and you scroll down and it's like from around the web and then it's, you know, US cardiologist says like throw out this one food now or, it's like a power washer for your insides, or there's that's uh, you. Uh, that's my friend's company. I've, I've written for that doctor. That specific ad I didn't write, you know. But the idea being, yeah, for that stuff, yeah, I have done a couple of things for them. But right, like, and then someone clicks, and then there's like a little advertorial, so it's like a little article, and you click on that, and then there's like a 40 minute long video of this doctor talking on camera, and then out of that, everyone who gets that video, maybe like. 3% of those people buy this like, you know, gut like supplement or whatever. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it. It's like these people, here you were just on Forbes, reading the news or on checking the weather, going about your day, and this ad caught your attention and you clicked it. And then this video for this doctor, you didn't really know. You're like, oh, you start playing it. And then 45 minutes later, you're, you know, taking out your credit card and paying like $150 or $200. It's, it's kind of amazing. It, it is intoxicating almost, right? Because you're like, wow, what a, how incredible that this actually works. But it, it actually does. It's pretty cool. Amazing. Okay, let's dive into our 10 espresso shots. The first question being, what entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into copywriting? Yeah, so I think one of the places you might actually look at starting would be with content writing, which is not the sexiest suggestion. So I totally get that. But the reason why I think that's an interesting option is because you are going to get paid to write. And there's a constant need for people to create content. So by content writing, it might be uh, writing blog posts for a website because they want to have better search engine results. Or it might be writing their actual website content, which is really straddles the line of copying content. Maybe they need help writing like uh, their about page or their how it works page or whatever it is. And I, I think psychologically... People who maybe are interested in writing just have a hard time believing that they can actually get paid to write. So there's there's such a high need for content writers that even though you might not get paid a ton, you might get paid like fifteen or twenty dollars per page, and it's going to take you maybe an hour, which is you know fifteen twenty dollars an hour. It's not like amazing, but you're still getting paid to write, you know. And especially if you're young, where like an entry level job might be twenty four thousand dollars or something like that, and if you get paid fifteen dollars an hour, that's like thirty thousand equates to thirty thousand right a year. 
$20 an hour quits so at $40,000 a year. So it's not a bad place to start. And you're still, there are copy elements. Because even if you write a blog post, it needs a really good headline. that's going to capture people's attention and get them to actually read the rest of the blog. And you need a really good opening sentence. You need to have interesting kind of hooks that are going to make people keep reading. So you'll get practice with some important copy elements. But it's also very kind of low barrier to entry. So that's, that's the place I would consider starting. You were also saying when you and I were chatting earlier that there are these freelancing websites, whether it's Upwork or Fiverr, where they advertise for, is it not just content writers, but also copywriters? Absolutely. So that, and that's where I got a lot of my, my gigs early on was on... Today, it's called Upwork. At the time, it was called Elance. And they, they merged with another freelancing company and became Upwork. But um, yeah, if you go there and make an, a profile, you'll just see... They have all kinds of uh, freelancing jobs. I mean, I, that, that's the crazy thing to me is like, if you're an account and you hate working for a firm, it's like you can easily make $100,000 a year as like a freelance account. So, you know, same thing if you're a lawyer. But then also, if you graphic design, you know, if you do coding, programming, uh, bookkeeping, I mean, everything. But there's a ton of writing opportunities there, both for content and yeah, and also copywriting. So I love, I love sites like that. Go make a profile. The big thing is, is put time into your applications because you apply for these gigs and you have to share why they should, why should they hire you. And, and early on for me, I got a ton of, I did really well. I had a really high success rate of my proposals being accepted. And I think the reason why is because I would really customize each proposal to the client. I would talk about them and their needs. I would you know, even write a little something for them for kind of free that kind of let them see what it would look like to work with me. And it was not boilerplate. I think the big mistake people make when applying for jobs in general, whether freelancing or for a career, is just these like boilerplate generic cover letters that don't differentiate you at all, right? So much of life is setting yourself apart from everybody else and staying out from the crowd. And you need to do that when applying for different gigs as well. Oh my God, that is amazing advice. Fantastic. That is a gem. And in fact, I'm going to take out my little, what is this? Like it's a chakra bowl and give you a little ding there. Okay. (laughs) What about a useful, hard and soft skill, Stefan, that you look for in the young people that you hire? So I think a, a soft skill is the ability to look at seemingly unrelated concepts and then bring them together or synthesize information. Because when people have very linear focus, if they're they're really maybe good at one thing, but they can't look at a broader context, you know, that's valuable, but it's more valuable. I think the way really brilliant ideas and, and breakthroughs happen is by that synthesis. So, you know, looking again at, at disparate things and then and then finding a way to to find a theme or a pattern. Almost a critical thinking. I mean one thing I'm I'm doing my former college is setting up two scholarships and one's for like uh, the people in business school and then one's for people in like the humanities and, and philosophy, stuff like that, which I'm a philosophy major. Um, but both of the scholarships go to, to students who exhibit critical thinking skills because I think it's such a valuable thing. So rather than just make it about performance or whatever it is, I want critical thinkers in the role. So that to me is really important. And it's kind of like a soft skill, I guess. More, it straddles the line. It's both. But for a hard skill, I mean, I would look at something just... Like for me, writing, right? You need to be a clear and concise writer. You don't have to be the best writer ever. You don't have to be Ernest Hemingway. You don't have to make me weep every time I read your 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 amazing immaculate prose. But I do need you to be able to express concepts very clearly because that's what we do as copywriters. Although making them weep might be a good thing. 
can be very good, yes. <laughs> so you mentioned that you were a philosophy major. Is someone's major a deciding factor to break into copywriting? In other words, does it help if they majored in English or English lit or comparative literature or fill in the blank? I don't think that it is essential. I think certainly if you are a... Well, actually, there's pros and cons to, to all of it, even. Because for like an English major, then you know they may be used to these very complex sentences, right? Depending on their style, but where they're, they're using really big words and they're trying to be very flowery with their descriptive language and things like that, which is can be cool. But at the same time, we have to remember that the average American adult reads at an eighth grade reading level. So you do see that really smart people who start writing copy... And they're just using big words like, you know, I, I, if I say disparate, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about, but a lot of people don't. So I shouldn't have that in my copy. I should, I should say diverse. But, you know, so, so the point being like, but at the same time, you've been doing a ton of writing and you're, you know, if you're writing a ton, you know, that can have value. But really, no, I mean, I, I know people in the space who are really successful who didn't graduate college at all. I know people who were engineers, uh, former doctors. I know people who, yeah, were creative writing majors and things like that. So it's a funny anecdotal thing, but I can't tell you how many times I've been in an Uber and maybe I'm staying at like a really nice Airbnb. So it's like this really nice house that they pick me up from or something. And then they ask me what I do. And I, you know, I basically, a lot of times I'm like, oh, I'm in marketing, right? I do marketing stuff. And it's always like, oh, like, yeah, I've been interested in marketing, but uh, I didn't get a degree in that or I didn't, you know, finish college. So I can't do it. And you're like, well, no, you still, you still can. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the internet. You don't need a, a degree in marketing to do marketing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, man, if only I'd gotten that degree. And then they keep driving. It's like they're just shut off from it. And it's always frustrating to me. And that's part of the, the road to a billion stuff is like, I want to show people that it is possible to have a great career and be successful because of the amazing power of the internet and the way we're all connected and all the opportunities that the internet has brought us. I love that. I, I have to give it another ding. And the other thing is, I just started this today. So the other thing, in fact, I posted about this on LinkedIn the other day, our mindsets, and I know mindset is a big thing for you, Stefan, but our mindset in terms of our major, what we majored in as school is very linear. So people think that they're stuck in this little house, whatever the English, history, geology, philosophy major they were, when in fact, they're all cross-cutting. If your job function that you want to be in is in writing, communications, verbal, project management, accounting, finance, whatever it is, those are all cross-cutting into every single industry out there today. 100%. I completely agree. I, I, I really, it goes back to almost that, that kind of synthesis, like synthesized thinking, right? Um, this idea, because yeah, whatever your major is, it's great. It's good. I mean, I, you know, I did, I started as a political science major, switched to philosophy, took the LSAT, got into law school, decided not to go. You know, then just was a vagabond and, you know, but now I am one of the best copywriters in the world. I mean, you just, whatever your, your major is great because you learn stuff and it's about the, the dedication, you're going to class or all those things. And there's, there's great life skills that you can learn if you take your education seriously, but it doesn't mean that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And it's, it's, I almost I wish young people would, would almost like feel like it's, no, it's okay. It's okay. Calm. You can like, take a breath. Like, your major is kind of important, but it's not that important. You're not making a decision for the next 30 years of your life. You're making it for the next like four years of your life. And then maybe you're going to dabble for a couple years after that. But I really wish that, that people would tell young people that. 
Stefan, I'm like throwing down the gauntlet in front of you because I would even go farther than that and say your major is a foundation, as I said before, and it only matters like the way you should think about post-college career is what do you want to do for the first year? And we're going to get into your story, which I think is among the best examples of why that is the case, why it doesn't matter what your first, what your second, what your third job is. It matters that you're learning skills, whether you're in a shitty, I'm sorry, call center job and you know, with all due respect to all those in-call setters, they're hard jobs to do, but you're learning super valuable skills doing it that will come into play at some point in your life, whether you become a copywriter or a podcaster. Right. 100%. Okay. What about a grad school degree? Is it important to have less so for somebody starting out in their job, maybe more so for somebody if they're going to run their own business or whatever the case may be? I think there's there's value to it certainly. I think for someone who's you know starting out and wants to be in advertising, copywriting, marketing, I don't think it's at all like a necessity. As somebody who who runs multiple businesses and has run many over the last you know decade or whatever, if I'm hiring somebody for like a, a C level, like so like you know a COO or someone like that, and they have an MBA, you know that certainly stands out to me. But even it, you know, even then, it, it, I've had mixed results. I've hired people with these crazy resumes and they're like Harvard MBAs, but then they're so almost like try, try and treat a small business like it's some Fortune 500 business because a lot of their case studies were about these like you know massive corporations, and you're like we're like a lean startup and we're way more agile, and they have a hard time you know coming to that. So even even then, I, I do think it stands out to like, employers, right? If you have that stuff. It's, it's nice to have, but I don't think that is essential. When it comes to copywriting, same thing. You know, sure, you have like an, like my wife has an MFA in, in creative writing and like poetry, and she also writes copy, but she doesn't really work with clients anymore. But, you know, I think that there's there's a value to that. I think actually teachers, I mean, I almost, you know, we'll get into my full story later. I almost became a teacher because I just, love teaching and making an impact in the lives of people and again hence the road to a billion. But I think if you're a good teacher, that could really help you. So you know if you have like a master's in education or whatever, that, that could be helpful because you're maybe you're really good at explaining concepts in a simple way. So nice to have, but yeah, definitely not essential from, from my perspective. Awesome. And you see, this is yet another example, my friends, of how all of Stefan's kind of Interests, talents end up leveling up into who he is today because he is tapping into his writing, his interest in writing and his interest in teaching and his interest that goes beyond that, the, the mission driven side, wanting to make the world a better place. So you too will figure it out. It happens over time. It's iterative. So Stefan, what kind of life experiences do you think are most useful for our young listeners to try to cultivate if they want to get into copywriting? So those experiences that we have outside the classroom. I think one of the most important ones is, is just a lot of contact with people. I think, you know, as a copywriter and a marketer and advertiser, you know, a lot of it is understanding human nature and what people want, what people say versus what they actually think, right? Those fundamental kind of truths, which again, as a, as a philosophy major, I was always interested in that. And I think you get that experience through exposure to, to a lot of unique people from different backgrounds, right? A diverse group of people. And how do you actually get that? One of the interesting commonalities I found with a lot of high level copywriters and entrepreneurs that I know is a lot of us did door-to-door sales. 
And a lot of us also worked in call centers, which we mentioned the call center aspect. And I think it's because, yeah, it helps with selling. If you go, you know, you're going in both cases, you're talking to a complete stranger who does not want you to be talking to them. <laughs> and you're trying to get them from, from going from that to giving you money or signing up for something or buying something or whatever. So there's a value to, from, from that perspective. But I also think it's just because you are in contact with so many people. So I hated my call center job, hated it. But you know, when you're calling 200 plus people every single day, and you're talking to a lot of them, and then some of them, you're getting them to, to share their, their life experiences and their stories, you know, you, you learn stuff about human nature, you start to see commonalities and threads and that, you know, even geographically based, right? If you're if you're calling a bunch of people in, in this area of Texas, and they all seem to say these same things, that's interesting. But over here in California, people have a different you, know, you just start to kind of understand, I think, the makeup of people better. And so I think those are really valuable skills. I mean, it, I think everyone honestly should either work in a call center or go door to door. It's just It just helps you on so many levels. I mean, like you get used to rejection, you learn how to sell, you learn how to communicate, you get comfortable with being uncomfortable. There's just so many cool things that happen. Great advice. And actually, we talked about journalism earlier in a, I hate to say it, but in a part of an episode that I wasn't recording folks. So Stefan, we're redoing this. This is so embarrassing. But what I was going to say is that I started out as a local journalist, a local radio reporter, and then a local TV reporter in which I had to go and try to get people who had, in some cases, experienced a terrible loss in their lives, whether it was a fire or a shooting or some awful thing. And to get them to talk to me at that moment, at that time, I hated doing that, Stefan. But you want to talk about getting pushed out of your comfort zone. Like that is, nobody likes that. And so I kind of put it in the same category as the door-to-door call center experience. Oh, 100%. And I think that to your point, that being out of your comfort zone is, is, is so valuable. One of the... When I went back to college and finally kind of took it seriously and, and did well and got a degree, it was 2008. And again, I'm... Uh, Mostly a California boy. I was, I was born in kind of rural Maryland and then moved to California, San Diego when I was eight. And we'll get into the whole story later. But you know, I went to college in Pensacola, Florida, which is like the panhandle, deep south, which I wanted to do. I, I mean, there's a whole long story there. But basically, I was like, yeah, I want to go somewhere totally different and have different experiences. And then this is during the 2008 election. You know, Obama has captured the kind of imagination and hopes of, of a whole generation of young people. So I basically ended up becoming in my first semester there, the campus coordinator for the Obama campaign in the Pensacola, Florida. And so I did a bunch of stuff for the campaign, including going door to door canvassing to find out if people were going to like, you know, vote for Obama or not. But being in the deep South and you're going like away from your, your little bastion, the university and, the, you know, I'm talking going to like these double wide trailers where they've got the Confederate flag on one window and, you know, the like, you know, NASCAR Dale Earnhardt flag on the other. And you're knocking the door to be like, hey, are you going to vote for Obama? Right. But honest to God, the funny thing is what, what I found from that is even then talking to the people, right, who because you're this like liberal kid from like California, super liberal state. So you kind of have all these stereotypes in your mind that they're going to be these rednecks who are going to like, you know, just automatically be racist and cuss you out all that. But like a lot of people were like, well, I'm not sure, probably not. But like you'd have these conversations and they actually were not like they had a lot. It was much more nuanced than you would have expected. So even that was interesting because it teaches you again, this goes back to life experience. Suddenly you realize that you can't just like stereotype people, categorize them and put them into buckets. It's like they have, you know, both sides to it. Like, sure, some there's a kernel of truth for some stereotypes of 
these people, but then there's, there's, they have their hopes and dreams. They have their reasons. They have things. And you just, you really understand and, and almost love people more. There's more empathy gets built and you have more love for people of all backgrounds by doing stuff like that. And I don't think, you know, if, if you just sort of stay in your bubble and never get out of it, then I, I don't think you ever have those experiences. Beautiful. Beautiful. So Stefan, what is the best part for you of being a copywriter? I think the best part for me is the interesting people I get to meet. It's really cool. So I do a lot of stuff in the, the health space. So I've gotten to write for really famous doctors with really interesting ideas. So like, you know, we talked about that, the power washer for your insides, US cardiologist, right? I've gotten to have phone calls with Dr. Gundry, who who pioneered this whole heart, you know, kind of surgery and, and talked to him about intermittent fasting and what's actually going on in your gut and like lectins and all this interesting to me, interesting stuff about, you know, human health and the body and what he personally does. You know, other other doctors, I just did something with Dr. Uh, Claudia Aguirre, who's like the skincare doctor. And she has this amazing TED talk about how you're basically your, your skin, we, we show our emotions on our skin. And so if you even with wrinkles and things like that, it's your a sign of distress that things aren't great inside your brain and like how to like kind of calm and meditate is like meditation for your skin and not just your mind. And you're like, this is super interesting. You know, famous celebrities like Tony Horton, who, who's from P90X, or I'm doing something with a really famous boxer right now and actors and actresses. I got to direct this guy named uh, Robert Catrini, who's in the Jack Reacher movies. He's not like a super famous actor, but he's been in a ton of stuff you've seen. And I basically wrote a script and then got to direct him. So it was like me and him. And then this guy, I'm going to blank on the name, but this guy who's like Mark Wahlberg's like, like really good friend who is in a bunch of episodes of Entourage. And like that guy's there. And I'm like directing these people. And I'm like, this is crazy. I'm getting to like direct these like famous actors and like very intimidating, but you know, stuff like that is so cool. So I, I don't know where, I'll, you know, you get those, those experiences and, and because you're the expert, you kind of get carte blanche to ask them whatever questions you want. So, you know, you're asking stuff to help you sell a product, but I'm also sneaking in all kinds of selfish curiosity based questions too, because I can, and I get to learn and I, I love that. Oh my God. That feels like cornucopia. To <laughs> <me>. <laughs> Honestly, that is what I love about, what I get to do on my podcast because I love learning about people. So the flip side, Stefan, because every job, no matter how much money you're earning, no matter how much flexibility you may have, has aspects that suck. So what is the part of your current job that sucks the most? Yeah, I think that... For me, the, the biggest one would be just when you get clients that suck. I mean, not every client is going to be your dream client. And what you tend to find is that as you rise up the ranks and you're working with higher level clients, uh, they generally do become better clients and easier to work with for a lot of reasons. They're, they're more experienced. So they kind of know to let creatives be creative and, and give them their space generally. And you know, even though they're investing a larger amount of money proportional to their revenue and income and operating budget and advertising budget and all that, like it's it's not, it's a fraction, right? So there's not like when when you're starting out and somebody hires you for five hundred dollars, but this is like they've saved up that five hundred dollars for the last six months. And you know, if this doesn't go well, then it's gonna put them back six months. And it's it's understandable, but they're much more hands-on micromanaging, like they're, they're just really worried kind of and, and it puts all pressure on you and it's not fun to work with. And so in general, as you level up, the clients get better. But that's not always the case. There's still those clients who are micromanagers that are trying to be involved in every step of the process. And then who, you know, you give them a script that you've written, suddenly the entire team is like going through and making comments in a Google Doc and you know, like Jan from accounting is saying how like, oh, I wouldn't use this word, I'd use this word. And and Steve from fulfillment is saying, What if instead of this we did this? And you're like, like it's not that people's input can't be valuable, but you're like, dude, you, you paid me all this money. 
because I'm like the best in the world at this. And now you're just like having people who have no experience whatsoever coming in and marking this up and, and making suggestions and you're all arguing internally. And it's like, just launch the damn thing, right? And see how it does. And if it doesn't, my whole philosophy is if it doesn't do well for some reason, and usually it does, but I'm not, I, I, nobody bats a thousand, right? So if it doesn't, then then we'll go in and we'll take data and we'll, we'll iterate and optimize based on data. But us having a bunch of hypothetical conversations for the next, all that does is delays the time from when this could go live, when you could start making money, when you could start impacting people's lives. Uh, all we're doing is pushing all that back to have completely arbitrary and hypothetical conversation. So that's definitely the worst part when and then you know the all you can do with that is is not work with those clients again afterwards, which is generally good. Every now and then I made that mistake. Not not recently, but you're like, oh I hate working with that client. And then they say, hey, I want to pay you another fifty thousand dollars to write like a seven thousand word script. And it's really hard to say no to that, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. I don't care how much money you make. At a certain point, sure, maybe you get to that place, right? But even though I'm, I'm very successful, I'm, I'm, it's still hard to say no. But I, with the clients who are not dream clients, I've, I've learned to just say no because it's not worth it. Because the mental stress and even your hourly rate, if you think about your hourly rate, because you, instead of just writing something and giving it to them, now you're doing that. But now you're going through rounds of phone calls and revisions. So the amount of money you make per hour actually declines significantly with clients who are more of micromanagers. So for that reason alone, there's an economic, very rational economic economic reason to not work with them. You are very data driven, I can tell. <laughs> For me, a philosophy major, yeah. <laughs> so three final espresso shots. What is the best career advice you've ever gotten, Stefan? The best advice I've ever gotten came from my dad and I didn't fully understand it at the time. But the advice was that the cream tends to rise to the top. And the context for that is at the time, it was one of the many jobs I had before I discovered copywriting, freelancing and entrepreneurship. And I was just feeling frustrated because... And I still feel this way about most traditional jobs is, is there's like the bumpers in the bowling alley lane. It's like you can't really go off track. Like you can't, you can't, things go at a, a pace that's very dictated so that, you know, it's like, hey, oh, great ideas. Like you're contributing a lot. So in a year and a half, you can move into this position and you'll get like a $5,000 per year increase of salary. And then three years, you could be in this position and get like a 10. And it's like great, I guess, knowing that that can happen. But there's someone who is very much a, a quick starter. And you know, entrepreneurial, and felt like he had a lot to, to contribute. I just would get frustrated. So my dad's advice was that you know he said, in my experience, the cream tends to rise to the top. And he he meant it within a corporate setting, which is probably also fair and true. But the reason it was valuable is as I got into copywriting, rather than worrying about oh I got to make all this money, I've got to be known as the best, all that stuff. It was like let me just focus on the process. Let me focus on becoming the best. And if I do that, I the rest of it should follow. And that is what happened. And so that's where I give advice to aspiring copywriters as well. Because, you know, there are the people who hear that I make like, you know, get paid fifty thousand dollars to to write something or that I make millions of dollars a year or whatever. And they're like twenty two and they come in and they're getting paid two hundred dollars to write something or and they get impatient. And they're like, What well, I thought I was gonna make, you know, millions of dollars. And you're like, You could, it might happen. I mean, I really believe that it's not at all impossible. And I've, I've seen plenty of people do it, but it doesn't happen overnight. So don't worry about that, right? Worry about the process. Worry about mastering your craft. Worry about getting better. And if you do that stuff, then generally, you know, you will rise to the top over time. So that's why that advice is, is so powerful. Have you read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers? I have read that, yes. Isn't that where the 10,000 hour rule came in? And I actually did the division. <laughs> I figured if you work 40 hours a week for basically 50 weeks a year, you take two weeks off, it would be five years, five years of diligent 
work translates into mastery. Do you think that's been the case for you or did it happen sooner? Or did you just not take those two weeks of vacation a year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I probably, I got like really good. So I started in like in early 2012 and I probably started to get really good in mid 2014, 2015, but not like I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I was a master or not, but I started having a lot of success. You know, I think that there's 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 shortcuts and hacks and things like that, like coming up with a kind of a process in the system. So like my RBC method we alluded to, which is sort of a process for writing copy in less time and things like that. But, you know, I mean, I'm still getting better and still mastering it. And so I think overall, yeah, I do think the 10,000 hour thing is pretty accurate. And and I think the thing to think about like five years when you're young or old, I mean, it, it can seem like a long time. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, if you're 22 right now, and you're like, all right, by the time I'm, I'm 27, I, I'm not right, I'm 35. But I'm just saying, for someone who's 22, you can think by the time I'm 27, I could be like one of the best in the world at something. And then for the next like, you know, 20, 30 years, like I can just reap the benefits of that. Right for decades of my life, it's a really worthwhile investment to make. And five years can seem like a long time. But the other thing is, even sure, it may take five years to become a master, but after a year, you're better than you were when you started. So now you're making a little bit more money. It's not like you don't get to make money before then and you can really accelerate very quickly. But you know, five years in the, the horizon of time is not not that long. And so I really think it is worth those pursuits if it's something you're passionate about. I am with you. So what movies, if any, or Netflix, Amazon, Hulu streaming shows, or books, Stefan, do you think accurately depict copywriting? Oh, man. I don't know a ton of movies that, that really talk about copywriting, interestingly enough. And I've only watched a little bit of Mad Men, which is... The advertising part is interesting. Like I know they talk about stuff like like the Lucky Strike, which was like, you know, a cigarette brand, right? And they basically realized that they toasted it and that that was sort of the unique kind of mechanism, the unique value proposition of it. And so I think you can learn about advertising from a show like Mad Men. You know, books. I really look at... at Books on copywriting, about copywriting, things like that. Like, if you look at something like Getting Everything You Can Out of Everything You've Got by Jay Abraham, it's a cool book. That's neat because it's really about how to take whatever you already have and, and monetize it. But there's definitely copywriting elements in there. And then just some of the classic stuff, like there's like a book called Breakthrough Advertising, which is a couple hundred dollars. So it's not cheap, but by Eugene Schwartz. But that really is considered like one of the Bibles of copywriting. And, you know, I don't know. People, people act like it's the greatest book ever written. Like, I don't. In our, my industry, you know, I, I won't go that far, but it's cool. It's, it's worth reading to kind of understand a little bit more about how to think like a copywriter. Cool. And is that for direct response copywriting or general? It's um, both, but it definitely applies to direct response. And that's kind of what Eugene Schwartz was. I mean, he, I don't know when he, he died in like the 90s, maybe. So this guy is more from that book. You know, the book was written in like the, oh, I don't want to sound like an idiot and copywriters hate me. So I think it was like the 50s or 60s or something. It was, it was written a, a long time ago. But it, what's cool about it is it does still hold true today. Nice. Okay, we'll make sure to include links in our show notes. Final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about copywriting? Yeah, I think that they'd be surprised to learn in some respects that it's not rocket science, that it's something that you can really, you can start doing it and having success pretty fast and pretty easy because there's so many different types of copywriting. So there's like the long form infomercial scripts, which may take a long time, but other copy, direct response copy, it's like writing marketing emails, it's writing Facebook ads. So you're writing, you know, like for example, I have plenty of friends who write Facebook ads and charge like $500 or $1,000 per ad, and the ad's like 150 words. Right. 
So it's very easy to like make a lot of money. Again, I'm not I'm not trying to sell you this like oh become a copywriter tomorrow and you're gonna start making like a thousand dollars an hour, right? It takes some time, but it's not that hard to write a great ad or a great email. You know, it's really just about curiosity and catching people's attention and then getting them to take action. So the big thing is that the barrier to entry is really not that hard, and and and. You don't need to be, again, like Ernest Hemingway. You don't need to be some master writer. You don't need to have studied advertising. It's really something that almost anyone can do. If you have a, a brain and you know you can write understandable, comprehensible English sentences, like you truly can have success with copy. Awesome. Stefan, where can our listeners find you and learn more about the courses you offer? And of course, your show, your podcast, they need to tune into The Road to a Billion. Absolutely. So yeah, the best place, I mean, I'm, I'm all over the place, but like I'm on Instagram at Stefan Georgi and things like that. But really, if you go to my website, stephanpaulgeorgi.com, you'll get access or you'll see links for you know my courses and uh, a lot of other resources. And then really, I would say get on my email list. So there's a link from the website, but also just if you go to stephanpaulgeorgi.com forward slash subscribe. What's cool about my email list is that I'm, I write every single day. It's not a daily email. Generally, you know, between 300 and 1500 words just really depends on my mood and what I have to say. You know, I sell stuff occasionally. Like right now, we have an event coming up for my mastermind that I run. So we've been pushing that a bit. But in general, most of the time, I'm not selling you stuff. I'm just writing valuable stuff about copywriting, entrepreneurship, marketing, mindset, things like that. People who are on it love it. Like my open rates are really high. My unsubscribe rates are really low because you're not getting spammed with a bunch of like, hey, click here, buy this, right? Like it's me just trying to provide valuable. So that's a really great place to, to interact with me more. So I tried to sign up and I did sign up, but I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to be accepted because part of his amazing language, he's playing to the psychology piece of like, we're going to review your application to see if you will be accepted. It made me think that maybe I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't make it. Yeah, I have an application. You know, truthfully, the vast majority of people are accepted. I do that as like a screener because I want people who really want to be on my email list. I, I want people who are going to be engaged. And so it's just like a step you have to take because someone who takes that step is way more likely to actually be an active subscriber who's reading my emails, replying, things like that. I do actually go look at every single application. I, I don't like take a super long time, but I'll skim through it and, and see. And if somebody like kind of puts gibberish in or like one word answers or they don't give me they can make a fake name, which happens sometimes, right? Like I don't accept. But if you just give me like a good good answers, you will be accepted. So it's not like an elitist thing. I mean definitely there's part of that psychology of like, ooh, right? Like I hope I get you know this exclusive thing. But it's also just a vetting tool so that people who are on my, my email list actually want to be there. And it's not those sort of people who are going to sign up and then never actually read my emails because all that's going to do is hurt my deliverability rate by, you know, make my email. Other people who want to be on my list won't get my emails if I've got a bunch of people on there who aren't reading them. So that's why. Totally. Well, I hope you'll accept me. I didn't put my home address there. That's okay. That one's very optional. That's that. And honestly, I've never done anything with it. But you know, the thought process there is if you know I ever write a book and I want to send out a copy to people, or frankly, you know, if I want to send out like a direct mail piece of advertising, I have the address to do it. But I still haven't really done anything with the addresses. Well, I, I really do want to get your newsletter. So it was a genuine application. Stefan, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was just wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. Hopefully people who, who listened, I hope you got value from this. And you know, come, come interact with me if you want to learn more about coffee. I'm happy to share. 
Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.